Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night. Student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. The Bowery Boys, episode 288, The World of Tomorrow. The New York World's Fair of 1939. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we are journeying into the future to Queens in 1939. We're headed out for an afternoon of action-packed and absurd and perhaps even somewhat disturbing fun at the World's Fair of 1939. This was an event that was planned in the depths of the Depression, and it opened as tensions were mounting on the eve of World War II. However, this two-year event that was hosted out in Flushing Meadows, Queens, celebrated the future, the world of tomorrow, especially in terms of scientific development. Which shouldn't be surprising, as much of the fair was underwritten and supported by large corporations and manufacturers. They, they wanted to get their message out that the world of tomorrow was, was bright, it was exciting, and it was for sale. This month, we'll be celebrating the 80th anniversary of the opening of that fair at Flushing Meadows Corona Park in Northern Queens. And in this show, we'll be walking through pavilions and venues celebrating optimism of the most American corporate kind through this kitschy park that was designed with such earnestness that borrowed heavily from science fiction and turned American daily norms into a theme park of consumption. And consume we shall. Greg and I will be taking you out to the park. Uh, we're, we're both taking on different zones that mm -hmm. we will be leading us through. And we haven't really cleared this with each other in advance, but we're going to be springing our favorite attractions and pavilions mm -hmm. on each other and on you at the same time. So there are certain to be surprises galore. And believe it or not, there are actually remnants from the 1939 fair that are still with us today, and some of them even within the park itself, which I'll tell you all about. So prepare to experience the world of tomorrow as we head to the New York World's Fair of 1939. Gateway to the $155 million wonderland. From far and near come countless visitors by every mode of travel. Every means of transportation, they arrive to view the marvels of the greatest exposition in history. The 700 foot trilon rises above all else, and the circling helicline that leads into the Paris Fair's exhibit, Democracy, is a pathway to the future. Thousands are treading to get a fascinating preview of things to come. 
Oh man, Greg, does that not get you excited? <laughs> Don't you want to go there right now? Yes, I'm ready for a day at the fair, but let's situate us first. Where are we starting here? Okay, we are talking today about the World's Fair of 1939 and 1940. Remember, this is a two-year fair. Mm-hmm. Um, it was held out in Queens on the land that is today's Flushing Meadows Corona Park. And in terms of like situating us spatially, this was an enormous plot of land. It, it covered more than 1,200 acres. It's a vast park. It's, it's huge. It takes so long to walk, you know, to walk across this park. Of course, there are many ways to enjoy Flushing Meadows Corona Park today. Many people go out to see a Mets game at City Field, or they may go out to Arthur Ashe Stadium or Billie Jean King Tennis Center for the U.S. Open. Or they might be heading out for the fabulous Queens Museum. The zoo or the Hall of Science. Right. Or to tour the remnants of the 1964 World's Fair. Well, all of those things are out there today, but but we're getting ahead of our story mm-hmm. here. This fair, the one we're talking about today, is in 1939. So what was New York City like back in the 1930s during this period? Right. This is the very end of the Depression. Uh, the economy by 1939 was actually much healthier than it had been. But planning for the fair actually had started years before in the middle of the Great Depression. And in many ways, the fair and its big themes were a response to the Depression. There were hopes that the fair could help restore faith in business and really in America's future as a capitalistic economy. That's a rather lofty goal for a fair, for a world's fair here. Uh, this had lofty goals, but you have to remember that in the mid-30s, the city had been through a lot. There was the Roaring Twenties, but then the stock market crash of 1929 and the Great Depression in New York that had basically seen the, the city's economy decimated. So the early 1930s were really bleak, economically speaking. But the story started to turn around in 1934 with the election of a new mayor, the fiery Fiorella LaGuardia. And his appointment to the role of Parks Commissioner of Robert Moses. Now, together, those two, LaGuardia and Moses, worked very closely with President Franklin Roosevelt in securing hundreds of millions in Mm -hmm. New Deal dollars to get the city back to work and all cleaned up and develop new infrastructure and new parks all over the city. Yes, this is a different Robert Moses than the one we would discover in the 50s and 60s here. He was actually developing playgrounds, parks, swimming pools. As parks commissioner. As parks commissioner. Right. Immediately, starting in 1934, Moses was building hundreds of new playgrounds and also developing high-profile parks, many of which we've talked about on the show, like the redevelopment of Bryan Park and the development of Riverside Park, Mm -hmm. which we just did a show on. He also cast his eyes over in Queens on this parcel of land out here, which was an old dump called the Corona Ash Dump. An ash dump. Now, yes. I don't, we don't really think of like where we dump our ashes, but back then there were more ashes to dump, I assume. Yeah, think of all the apartment buildings and homes that had incinerators, mm-hmm. right? The incinerators burn up the garbage, leaving behind ash, and you had to do something with that. So there was an ash collection service, kind of like a garbage truck that would come around, but collect all the ashes and then haul them off to this ash dump out here in Corona. And this created enormous piles of ash, right? There were mountains of ash, almost 90 feet tall. Which famously is quoted by F. Scott Fitzgerald 
in The Great Gatsby, Gatsby, has, he's speeding along to New York City, passes this great ash dump. So both mountainous and incredibly unpleasant and filthy. Just waiting for somebody like Robert Moses to, to wipe it away and to convert the entire area into a park. So that had been Moses's plan for a while. And this was certainly a pet project of his, but mm-hmm. was he also constructing highways at, around this time? Well, this early Moses period, he was the parks commissioner, so he was building parkways. These were basically landscaped highways, uh, but lined with trees mm-hmm. or beautiful landscaping that connected parks. It was still very park-oriented. And before he was actually parks commissioner for the city, he headed the Long Island State Parks Commission, and in that role had started construction of the Grand Central Parkway in 1931. And that parkway actually cuts through the park or cuts through most of the park, right? Yeah, it sort of slices it in two. Mm-hmm. The Grand Central Parkway would be a huge project. It would actually tie in in the 1930s to an even bigger project, which he was also in charge of, which was the Triborough Bridge product, <laughs> project. So the Triborough Bridge opened in 1936. So there is a ton of construction going on, even though it's the Great Depression, because most of it's being funded by the federal government. Exactly. And that brings us back to the fair. Because corporations, private corporations are looking at this and they're getting a little bit nervous because they're also looking abroad and they're looking at the spread of socialism and they're thinking, okay, wait a second, we can't have all of these American workers. We can't have them getting too reliant upon the federal government for their paychecks. The future of the country needs to be about the the power of capitalism and, and democracy. It can't be about government handouts. So where did they even get the idea to have a fair? Like, why was that the thing that they were hanging their hopes on here? Well, World's Fairs and Expositions were very popular, obviously, with the general public and had become big events that were held in big cities around the world. New York hadn't had any kind of World's Fair since the 1853 Crystal Palace Mm. Exhibition. And it's true that the great World's Fairs that people remember were Chicago by this time in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Or Paris, yeah. And these fairs were also excuses for manufacturers to showcase their latest marvels, you know? So a group of businessmen hatched the idea to host one here in New York, and they formed the New York World's Fair Corporation, They chose as their leader the colorful former New York City police chief, a man named Grover Whalen. And Whalen was also something of a PR maven. He worked all the different angles to make sure that the fair would happen. He chose he chose the site. He negotiated, you know, logistics with Robert Moses. He raised tons of money. He raised twenty seven million dollars. He traveled around the world recruiting countries and companies to exhibit And together, this group developed a theme for the whole fair Mm -hmm. called The World of Tomorrow. So we were going to settle the the future of our society, the world of tomorrow. We were going to settle it here on the ash dump amidst (laughs) the mountains of ash. Moses was pretty happy when Waylon came to him offering to actually clear that land for them clean it all up, and develop it into a parkland suitable for a fair. One of the deals here was that when the fair was finished, the land would be handed over to the city for use as a park. 
they essentially handed Robert Moses a gift. The idea of like, we'll develop this whole thing and then we're going to be there for a couple of years and then you'll get to turn it into a huge park of your own design immediately afterwards. Yeah. And they had three years from the time the construction began in 1936 to get everything ready in time for the park to open in 1939. And so the World's Fair Corporation, mm-hmm. is this where the where are they getting their money from? Uh, countries and companies were paying to build their own pavilions. But yeah, that's a good point. The money to build the fair was coming from the exhibitors. And most of the money was coming from big businesses. These corporations were really eager to promote the idea that the future was bright. It was modern. There were technological marvels at hand. And technology wasn't to be feared. There was this tension, actually, throughout the, throughout the 1930s. The technology was actually replacing people's jobs. Mm-hmm. And, and so the companies are fighting back, saying, no, technology is actually creating more leisure time. It was, it was safer. It was, it was actually better. And it was, it was benefiting everybody. So the fair was using PR techniques to get that message out to the public however they could. So when you look at promotional items from the fair, you see that basic message underscored over and over. And this was circulated widely across the country. For example, a 1939 feature uh, in Life magazine, pages and pages of photos of the fair with the headline, The World of Tomorrow Will Be Fantastically Big and Bright. Corporations are your friends and will make your life better. Absolutely. <laughs> well, they even they even made a film that people could watch to get them excited about the objectives of the fair. I think you're referring to uh, the film The Middleton Family at the New York World's Fair. Yes, and not Kate Middleton, but, <laughs> uh, but another set of more disturbing Middletons, I would say. Did you have the same experience when you're actually Googling for The Middleton Family at the... <laughs> and it's all about Kate Middleton. It's all about, like, royal babies. But no, this is this was a 55-minute feature that was produced by the Westinghouse Corporation in 1939. We're going to talk about this in greater detail when we get to the Westinghouse Pavilion in the fair, but it's just an example of how one sponsor actually paid to create an entire corny film that was like production values were pretty good. They cast the whole thing and it's it's actually great. You can watch it for free on YouTube. Because it takes you directly into the fair and into the Westinghouse pavilion. So you really get to see in full color what the fair looked like and sounded like. The plot concerns a family from Indiana who is visiting the the grandmother who lives in Huntington, Long Island. And they're Mm going to go out for a day at the fair. And they happen to know some people there. So they get walked by these various pavilions and things. Which shows that it's like, it's great for the family, multi-generational fun at the fair. But then there's this weird subplot about this kind of loser guy named Nick, who's an artist and a socialist, who's actually... Um, making fun of all the technology and and pointing out that it's just going to be replacing people's jobs. So they actually address this central tension in this film. Westinghouse takes it on because the hero is is not Nick, but this guy Jim, who's a tour guide, just a regular (laughs) old guy from Indiana as well, who just extols the virtues of all of these technological marvels. And happens to be working at Westinghouse. (laughs) That certainly sounds all shiny and fun here, but I mean, there's already some problematic elements of this fair before we even get to opening day. 
Yes, for example, many scientists took issue with the fact that the fair seemed to all be about gadgets and not really focused enough on actual science. But there were even problems with the whole construction process as oh, well, right? On multiple fronts. Yeah, there were labor disputes, which led to all kinds of strikes and delays in finishing various pavilions on time. Swelling construction costs actually resulted in higher fair admission prices, which led to all kinds of complaints about how expensive the fair was. And then there was the issue of race. Uh, in fact, hundreds of African-American families had been displaced during the fair's construction. People who lived in old apartments uh, nearby found that their apartments had been condemned as slums. And meanwhile, African-Americans were also finding very limited employment options at the fair itself. This would lead to all kinds of protests throughout the whole construction process, and especially on opening day. And it's very odd when you look through a lot of the promotional materials and even at newsreel accounts and such, really, it is not a very diverse group of attendees. This is not a world of tomorrow for all mankind, as it claims to be. Right. And so finally, it was ready in the spring of 1939. Now, why exactly did they choose this particular time to open the park? Well, when they realized that it could open in early 1939, they decided to time it, in fact, with the anniversary of George Washington's inauguration in New York City at Federal Hall, which took place on April 30th, 1789, and on which we have an entire podcast. <laughs> so 150 years before the World's Fair opened, George Washington became, became the first president of the United States. And so they chose April 30th, 1939 as opening day, even though it would turn out that most you know, many of the pavilions were not actually finished and ready to go. Enough of it was ready to go that they could still stage this lavish event from the front page of the next day's New York Times. President opens fair as a symbol of peace, vast spectacle of color and world progress thrills enthusiastic crowds on the first day. And it's pages and pages of coverage of President Roosevelt delivering this address before a gathering of 60,000 people in the, uh, the open-air court of peace. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of other people were filing through the park, and the entire address was actually being carried on the radio and also on a new technology that was being debuted at the fair called television. Mmm. Waves of the future. It is the future. I mean, listen to this, this quote from the Times piece. While scores of newspaper and moving picture photographers made innumerable pictures from high platforms in front of the reviewing stand, Mr. Whalen opened the ceremonies before a battery of microphones, which were to carry the event not only all over the United States, but also by shortwave radio to many corners of the globe. With them was a telecasting receiver designed to report the occasion as the beginning of regular television service in the United States. I mean, talk about bearing the lead. That's like... <laughs> I guess they didn't, if, they didn't quite realize that we'd be living in a world where we're all attached to our televisions, right? Yeah, that's like, that is like the 30,000th word in this article <laughs> in the Times. Um, yeah, so in, in other news... Television began service that day at the fair. That's huge. Yeah. I think it's time for us to stop just talking around the park and to go into the park, shall we? 
You don't want me to keep talking about the ideals of capitalism (laughs) fighting back? Well, they're going to kind of seep in here as we progress. But let's just say that, you know, you're a, a local. You live in New York City or the surrounding area. Most likely, you're going to be taking the Long Island Railroad or one of three subway lines. Now, keep in mind, this is an era when there were two independent subway lines and then a third one that was owned by the city, right? Right, before the merger. Before the merger. So the IRT and the BRT are the two independent lines and the Long Island Railroad. For all of these, you would actually get out at the same stop as you do today for the subway oh. and for the Long Island Railroad. This sort of north of the entire park. Will its point today? That's where you get out to go see the Mets. Yeah, at City next Field. to City Field, sure. But there was another line, and that was the IND. And the IND was the city-owned line and took an entirely different route. They built a new line. That, that subway line would wrap around into a new entrance that was close to the area of today's Meadow Lake. Okay. That was demolished Almost immediately after the fair. Those were the days when you could just demolish the subway line because <laughs> sure. you didn't need it anymore. <laughs> well, anyway, we're, com- we're coming into that northern entrance. We have over 1,200 acres. So why don't we just take this from a bird's eye view, okay. okay, just to get our bearings here. Think of the park as a theme park in the classical sense. That is, it's divided into themes. It's not a theme park, like like we think of a theme park today. Well, it's not, like it's Six not an, Flags. It's not amusements. There is actually one zone for amusements, but for the most part, the park is it's not roller coasters, okay? Um, the park is divided into several themes or zones. Then... Each day at the park then actually had a different theme to it. So many of them would be based on park pavilions. So, for instance, one day would be Lithuania Day, and there would be a special collectible that would be distributed. So whenever you see a bunch of these sort of bizarre, wonky World's Fair souvenirs, they're usually from special days, special theme days. And so then how are these zones or these themes laid out? So just generally speaking, we're talking an array in a semicircle with various streets radiating out from the center with such names as the Avenue of Patriots, a street that would be lined with flags, or the Court of Power. Believe it or not, if you go to the park today, many of those streets are still there. Some of them would be used for the 64 World's Fair. And you'll even find some street plaques on the ground that will mention the name that they had back in 39. And these are radiating out of of what? What's at the center of these avenues of patriots and such? Well, at the center is an absolutely fun-filled area called the Theme Center. (laughs) That's very literal. (laughs) Yes. The Theme Center is the core, and it's dominated by two spectacular and very strange pieces of architecture. The Trilon, a three-sided spire that is 610 feet tall, and the Perisphere, which was a spherical gathering space and venue. Okay, well, it was right next to it. Kind of looks like Epcot. But these are both made of concrete and steel, and they're painted dramatic white in contrast to all the streets that are very colorful around it. So from wherever you stood in the World's Fair, you could always look at the theme center 
and see that that trilon. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like a compass. You always know where you're where you're at based upon that. Now, these structures were designed by Wallace Harrison and J. Andre Fulou. And Harrison, by the way, it has just completed portions of Rockefeller Center earlier in the decade. Wow. So yeah, right. That's also going on in the 1930s. But those structures today are no longer in the park. So They're gone, yes. Where, where was that located? Well, if you go to the park today, you'll see the Unisphere, which is that, right. that beautiful globe that was developed for the 1964 fair. Does that, so that was actually built on the spot of the Perisphere. So, so wait, so the, today's Unisphere was built on the site of the Perisphere next to the Trilon. Yes, and they were connected with a spiral walkway known as a helicline. But that perisphere, there's no windows in it, right? No, no. no. It's, what, a, it's concrete. Yes. What's inside of it? There is, a, I would say, an astonishing exhibit called Democracy. is a massive diorama that is detailing what the city of the future is going to look like. Crowds can enjoy it from all angles via a moving sidewalk that would revolve around it. So here at the core, at the at the center of the fair, is basically the mission statement of the entire fair, right? That this yeah. this is the world of tomorrow. And I take it it's a it's a happy place full of progress. Perhaps that's how some people took it back then. From my perspective, from our perspective today, I think it's it's incredibly bizarre. It's, it's what it is was a it's a bland science fiction rendering devoid of any historical context whatsoever. It was a circular city with miniature rows of housing developments, uniform streets, and model office buildings with ugly shopping malls, all made of like concrete and but also claimed to be environmentally friendly and it was broken up in all these different like suburb type towns so the world of tomorrow is a world of urban sprawl (laughs) highways and shopping malls yes and this was something that they were aspiring to this is something to look forward to well they they got it yeah, I mean, <laughs> they nailed certain aspects of it. It's true. Nailed it. Unfortunately. But uh, there are no windows in this place, and I'm getting kind of claustrophobic. Can we please get outside? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we're going to leave the perisphere here. But before we leave the shadow of the Trilon, I want to make note of just of one building that's sitting right next to it, behind these structures, facing the Grand Central Parkway. This is a... In comparison to everything else here in the park, a rather nondescript building, neither grandiose or futuristic in any way, called the New York City Building. This would be the home of municipal agencies and featured demonstrations by the New York Police Department and the New York Fire Department. Demonstrations? Yes, including a crime scene investigation exhibition called Murder at Midnight, where you could go and watch a crime being investigated and how it would be processed for forensics and that type of thing. Fascinating. (laughs) I'm only pointing this structure out. We're going to get to a lot more flamboyant stuff here in a second. But at the end of the day, this will be one of the only structures from the World's Fair that would survive to present day. Well, as fascinating as that demonstration seems, (laughs) can we go to the other side of the perisphere? It looks like there's a giant esplanade uh, that's heading towards a what is that a lagoon down there this in fact is the constitution mall 
It's a long esplanade lined with trees on either side of it and five lakes or lagoons that are projecting outward from the perisphere and then ending with a gushing fountain at the very end called the Lagoon of Nations. Now, now what, <laughs> Not to be confused with the League of Nations. <laughs> no. Also, the word lagoon means something very different today. You know, th- th- this was pre-Creature of the Black Lagoon, so... But there were no scary creatures crawling out of this lagoon, <laughs> lagoon of nations. Well, that depends on what your opinion was of the 61-foot-tall statue of George Washington that st- stood over these bodies of water by James Earl Fraser, facing towards the Trilon and... Perisphere facing towards the future. But you mentioned before that this was divided into different zones. Is, mm-hmm. is this lagoon? Is that a zone? No, lagoon no, of nations? No, it ends in a zone. Why don't we go to that zone first? Okay. okay. Well, it happens to be the government zone. <laughs> None of the zones could pack them in like the government zone. <laughs> well, and anyway, let's let's head there first, right? Because it's, it's near the lagoon of nations, the, uh-huh. the gushing fountains. In fact, if you were to have your back to the fountain here, you would be facing into the Court of Peace, where all the entities of the world could congregate and learn about one another. Now, at the very center, you would have the United States Federal Building, with 13 columns representing the original 13 American colonies. You could go to the Federal Building and head in to watch a film that was specially made for the fair. Uh Uh-oh. (laughs) about American history called Land of Liberty, directed by Cecil B. DeMille. The film was over two hours long. But wait, time is limited. Why would we sit down for two hours to watch a DeMille film? (laughs) Over two hours. They would actually theatrically release this and have to edit it. (laughs) And apparently it was awful. Well, anyway, just to the east of this, you would have the Court of States with pavilions and architecture representing a number of U.S. states, including the territory of Puerto Rico. But the more fascinating pavilions are actually on the other side of the Court of Peace, and those are the pavilions of the Hall of Nations. Because, Tom, for as much as this fair is celebrating the future and progress and also celebrating keeping women in the kitchen, and there is also the idea of political cooperation. So that Mm -hmm. is what this, the Hall of Nations, is to represent. There was even a pavilion for the League of Nations, by the way. This is a lofty ideal, of course, at a rather treacherous moment in in world history. 1939. Okay, so you could have been at the fair on that opening day and walked by pavilions representing the countries of Poland, Italy, Switzerland, the British Empire, Japan, the Soviet Union, and France. And Germany? Did I hear Germany? Oh, no. I mean, believe it or not, Germany was supposed to be at the World's Fair. Even in the early planning stages, in early images, and even in the park itself, there was a German flag with a swastika in with the other flags of nations. However, Mayor LaGuardia was violently against it, as were, of course, many Jewish organizations in the city. They suggested that they replace the German pavilion with a religious freedom pavilion that would include an annex with a chamber of horrors, illustrating the atrocities of Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler. Wow, and they never they never did build that. No. Although many of the other countries that you just mentioned 
were very much affected by the war, especially yeah. over the course of this two-year affair. Mm-hmm. Just as an example, the Poland Pavilion, which was was a real standout, it had a, a fabulous 141-foot tower and an imposing bronze statue of King Ladislaw Yagiello. Well done. <laughs> a striking equestrian statue. But in September of 1939... Poland was invaded by Germany. And so, oddly enough, rather this called a rather macabre attention to the pavilion. People began flocking here, even as employees of the pavilion, because they were from Poland, fretted and worried about their families back home. No surprise then, by the 1940 fair, this pavilion was closed, as was Finland and Czechoslovakia. In fact, for that second year in 1940, they even went one further with the Soviet pavilion, which had a 79-foot-tall statue of a worker named Big Joe holding a communist red star. Did that last the whole fair? <laughs> no, they, that was removed by the fair organizers and was replaced with an area that was called the American Common. Then that year, 1940, when they opened American Common, that summer, this was the site of festivities related to the so, relating to the so-called Negro Week. They had a there was a week of African American related programming and uh, focus on culture. What what well, was this? Yes, one week in this one place in the park. W.E.B. Du Bois kicked it off with the speech here that summer. It was in uh, July of 1940. And there were performances throughout the week by W.C. Handy, U.B. Blake. There were dance recitals, literature readings. There was even a Hall of Fame for outstanding African-American men and women throughout American history at this time. But by 1940, this whole theme of the world of tomorrow, I mean, that seems kind of optimistic, given that you've got full-on war happening in Europe. Yeah, the, in fact, they had to actually give the whole World's Fair a new theme in 1940, because that didn't make any sense. The, uh, the new theme was for peace and freedom. So they've rebranded the fair mm-hmm. in 1940. This has all become quite a bit to digest. Greg. Yes, it's so very real world. Let's go off to something totally indigestible, the food area. Well, yeah, there's a whole zone for food. And although you could actually eat there, in fact, thousands did, this was literally an area for food production companies, okay? So it was between the Court of States. Yeah, don't get too excited. Um, It's between the Court of States and then another area, which you'll discuss, called the production and distribution. (laughs) So wait, there's a zone for food but it's more about, like, the business of food? Yeah, well, you can also enjoy the food, but it's it's also about, like, how there's new strides in food development. Are, can we have some fun, though? I mean, can we eat? Let's start here with the two main food halls. I'm getting hangry. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. I need some food. Well, then you'll be, you'll be okay with this. You'll like this. There's two main food halls called Food North and Food South. Catchy. Where you could see such things as the world's largest food food counter with a mammoth display of Wrigley's gum and other kinds of like large food. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this oh, is yeah. the era before fast food. We should, yeah. And this is like well before McDonald's has come along and revolutionized, you know, mm-hmm. can quick food. Now there so is, this is big food. This is big food. You know, who is also here is the National Biscuit Company. That's oh. a New York, that's based over in the Meatpacking District. You can you still know. walk by the old NBC building on the <laughs> High Line. Or as they would call themselves. Nabisco. Yes. Well, Nabisco was here. They had a specially produced 
film by Walt Disney that featured the antics of Mickey and Minnie Mouse. Making the, biscuits? Yeah, making biscuits. They burned the biscuits, actually. In, in, oh. the, in the Well, anyway, and then, of course, you could visit the one of my favorites is the Eastern State Ice Corporation. To quote from the amazing website, 1939nyworldsfair.com, quote, a large replica of a refrigerator dominated the display. In a block of ice appeared a living model who told the story of refrigeration of tomorrow. A number of marionettes dramatically illustrated the manner of cooling, cleaning, moistening, and maintaining freshness of food placed in the compartment. <laughs> I I have a couple questions about that. <laughs> Did you say that the block of ice told us? Yes, there's a a person in the block of ice telling the story. Was the microphone also frozen in the block (laughs) of ice with him or her? I'm going to imagine that the uh, that the ice wasn't really frozen; that it was a plastic, some sort of a plastic ice. Got it. But this is more my style. I'm feeling very happy to be over here with and marionettes talking to ice ice blocks. Well, if you like that, we should then proceed across the way to the American Tobacco Exhibit, which is in a building shaped like a pack of Lucky Strike cigarettes. Fun for the whole family. <laughs> well, you could go in and and buy souvenir cigarettes with special World's Fair packaging. Um, well, there's also the Continental Baking Pavilion, which looked a little bit like a package of Wonder Bread. Inside this pavilion, you could discover how to make processed bread. Behind the... <laughs> what What's their secret? Well... I have a feeling that's neither small batch nor organic. <laughs> in, in fact, they planted a wheat field behind the pavilion with an attractive woman scarecrow. There, by the name of Penelope Shue, the Scarecrow of Tomorrow. <laughs> um, at least we know that, that wheat went into the Wonder Bread. Yes, I mean, like, theoretically. It was also here that they would have their own beauty pageant during the fair, crowning the wheat heart of the fair. Oh. <laughs> bestowing the honor by placing a crown of wheat on the winner's head. But let's be honest here. Let's forget the bread and the cigarettes, okay? Is there anything to eat? <laughs> well, the star... Of the food zone, by far, one of the biggest stars of the fair was a cow named Elsie. The Borden Corporation, now the Borden was a company that made condensed milk, cheese. They had the Dairy World of Tomorrow pavilion here. Hold on, with actual cows? Oh, with actual cows revolving on an automatic milk machine called a rotolactor. Well, they had to keep things moving. (laughs) How, and how many cows were on the rotolactor? Well, well, they only did five at a time, but they would circulate through almost 150 cows. You know, I guess so they didn't get I dizzy. Know. I, don't, <laughs> I don't know. In any given day. Yes. Right. But Elsie. Elsie. This, this sort of like. Oh, yeah. But was, was there an actual Elsie? Was there one cow? No, no. At first, Elsie was really all of them. This was, this was like a girl next door cow, right? Like a pretty cow. <laughs> Wait, do you remember? You know, this is what well, Elsie I remember. Looks like. I yeah. remember what Elsie looks like, but w- yeah, she's she's kind of a flirt. Right? Yeah, well, she's yes. got her head sort of tilted just so. <laughs> but people actually wanted to see Elsie. Like the, her face was so recognizable that they wanted there to be an actual Elsie. So she had become a star before there was an actual cow. Uh, the handlers then chose the most charismatic cows of the bunch, mm-hmm. and they renamed her Elsie. In fact, she was a 
a Massachusetts cow by the name of You'll Do Lobelia was was yeah. her real name. But they actually renamed her Elsie, put her in a green dress, and then she became one of the biggest stars of the fair. I would even say one of the biggest stars in New York at the time. They even gave her a, a boudoir to hang out in. And even later in 1940, a husband named Elmer. Okay. <laughs> Hold on. Elsie is in a green dress. They, Elsie, they put yeah. a, they put Elsie the cow in a green dress. Yes, yeah, like a blankety kind of a dress. Yes, a blouse. Yes, not a not a blouse, Tom. A muumu. Elsie's <laughs> <laughs> in a green muumu. Mm-hmm. Is she on the Rotolactor? I think she was, but then she became an attraction in her own right. Oh, and of so course. she upgraded from the like Rotolactor here. And where did Elmer come from? He was brought in later as a as a spouse because of course you can't just have a single lady cow no. in the in the world's fair. She needed a companion. So, can we get a drink? Do they, are they serving <laughs> drinks at this place? You mean like n- not a glass of milk, but an actual drink? Yeah. Well, I, I kind of want to get out of this <laughs> this pavilion. Well, I don't know about cocktails, but you can definitely get a beer over at the world's fair's biggest dining area, which was Schaefer's Garden. Schaefer was a, a beer, beer manufacturer. They had a 160-foot outdoor bar where you could enjoy their product. All right. Well, let's let's pour ourselves a Schaefer. Rest for a moment because this has been a whirlwind morning, and we need to save up our energy for an afternoon that will prove to be very industrious. We'll get to those zones after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, 
the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? So we have refreshed ourselves here at Schaefer's Beer Garden. So where are we going next? Which zone are we headed to? Well, I think that we should spend the afternoon celebrating industry, Greg. And for that, we are going to start with the transportation zone. Mm-hmm. This zone is conveniently located not very far from the Perisphere and the Trilon. Uh, they got prime placement because, of course, these are big corporate sponsors that we're going to be visiting. Let's go back to the center. Now we're just going to cross over the Grand Central Parkway, crossing over the Bridge of Wheels to get to the transportation zone. <laughs> and this today is the area of the Queen's Zoo and the Hall of Science. Right. But at the fair in 1939, the chief attractions here were these large pavilions that were dedicated to transportation, including our first stop, the General Motors Pavilion, with its big exhibit, Highways and Horizons. (laughs) You'll notice, Greg, that this giant pavilion, it's actually four buildings that are connected together, and there's so much to see here. So let's go inside. You're going to spot some new Chevys, Oldsmobiles, Buicks. You know, they've got their new lineup over there. But let's get in that long, snaking line of people waiting for the star attraction. It might take over an hour to get inside for this but it will be worth it because they are waiting for maybe the biggest hit of the world's fair the exhibit called futurama (laughs) what a tantalizing name what is this all about well once we get inside we will take our seats one of the 600 moving seats each of them equipped with their own speakers that will whisk us far into the future into the world of tomorrow the world of 1960. (laughs) This ride, this 15-minute ride, kind of glides visitors um, over a 36,000-square-foot model of the future, which, of course, much like the model of the future that's in the Perisphere that you just described, this one was dominated by skyscrapers and by 14-lane highways, superhighways, with thousands and thousands of cars, automobiles, I imagine all GM automobiles, driving at speeds of 100 miles an hour, racing between uh, city and farmland and suburban development. Doesn't it sound great? (laughs) It doesn't sound that (laughs) far-fetched, actually. And actually, GM would construct another Futurama, very similar one, in the same spot for the 64 World's Fair. And this is just not the future of all automobiles, but specifically of General Motors vehicles, right? Yes. But there are other car makers here at the fair. Oh, yeah, of course. Nearby, we could, let's head over to the Ford Pavilion, because there, 
you could be wowed by an animated assembly line exhibit. You mean like a cartoon? Oh, I'm sorry, like an animatronic. Oh, exciting. A, yes, of course. <laughs> we per, we always prefer a good animatronic uh-huh. display. This was staged on a 100-foot-wide turning platform. You know, like you could do like a mean production of Les Mis on that. Uh-huh. Um, with 87 animatronic groups performing all the steps necessary to build a car. Oh, that's interesting, considering robotics would later take thousands of American jobs in the automotive industry. Don't be a downer, Greg. Um, let's keep moving, because here at the Ford Pavilion, there are also cars to drive. There is, in fact, a winding road of tomorrow outside that offers really like great views, circular views of the entire park and of, you know, the nearby pavilions that were also auto related. You know, there was one for Chrysler. There was one for Firestone tires. And certainly there was some kind of public transportation pavilion around here, right? <laughs> is that a joke? A public trans... <laughs> um, well, actually, there was nearby, there was a railroad pavilion, mm-hmm. which was still private enterprise at the time. The railroad pavilion was, in fact, the largest building at the fair. They, they needed a lot of space because 27 railroad companies showed off their most historic and prized locomotives here. Which is important because in 1939, remember, probably most of the people who were arriving from afar to the fair were arriving by train. Right, because commercial airlines were just sort of getting started here in the late 30s. Yeah. We would have gotten there early to get a seat for the spectacle called Railroads on Parade, a self-described railroad pageant that took place on a huge stage and showcased some of the, the great moments in railroad history. I mean, imagine how big a stage needs to be when it features a cast of railroads. <laughs> the, a railroad floor show. And the show never went off the rails. It did, however, have music by Kurt Vile. Really? Yeah, I know, just to drop that boldface, okay. unexpected boldface name in this thing. But let's keep going because as a podcaster, I think we need to get out of this zone, we need to head for the communications zone. Yeah, yeah. so the, let's cross back over the Grand Central Parkway. Right. right, and we're going to head to the left of the Perisphere right. to the AT&T Pavilion. Now, we're going to skip past at the AT&T Pavilion. There's an exhibit called Pedro the Voter, V-O-D-E-R, which was a kind of like like a machine that spoke with a human voice, a human voice demonstrator, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Skipping past Pedro, we're heading into the the demonstration call room, which was this huge room that was dominated by a map of the United States with, with little lights that were representing the main telephone networks across the country. You could wait your turn and then make a free long distance call to anywhere in the country using AT&T's Bell telephone system. Mind-blowing technology for the day, I'm imagining. Oh, but just you wait, because let's head next door to something truly mind-blowing, and that is the Radio Corporation of America's building, the RCA building, which was designed by Skidmore and Owings in in the shape of a radio tube. And we're really here in the RCA era here because they, they just moved into Rockefeller Center. Oh, yeah. And here they were about to present some of the great innovations of our time. In a, a beautiful building, actually with a sort of wall of windows, which was very unusual because many of the other air-conditioned buildings <laughs> yes. didn't really have any windows. Mm-hmm. 
We're going to blow past some other exhibits to make our way to the RCA Television Laboratory. In this laboratory, you could watch screens with live images of people who were standing in another room, other parts of the fair. You could even stand in front of a camera and be broadcast, beamed into another room. I mean, that must have seemed almost like supernatural. Oh, people could not believe that this was actually happening before their very eyes, that they were watching, you know, grandma or or sister Midge, you know, get like broadcast right in front of them mm-hmm. into these machines, you know, these early televisions, which look like a giant cabinet. They were big pieces of furniture. The top of them folded up and there was like a mirror, you know, that reflected the image down from the, the big screen that's inside of it. They couldn't understand how this was happening. RCA had to manufacture one of these televisions with clear sides so that people could see the tubes for themselves. That it wasn't faked in some fashion. Right. Or that there weren't people inside there. And RCA premiered this technology here at the fair and had used it, as we noted, on opening day, broadcasting the, the remarks of President Roosevelt. And not just RCA, Westinghouse was also showing off TVs, as was General Electric. So really, the, this World's Fair was the kickoff of the entire TV industry. Broadcast started, and so did the sales of televisions. And we have a three-part series on the history of New York City and television, which you can check out, which goes into the story with more depth. But I heard you mention Westinghouse. Yes. I think I'd like to go over to that pavilion because I heard that they have something that's like really futuristic. Oh, I think we'll just follow the crowds, Greg, into witness Electro, the Moto Man. <laughs> Electro was was perhaps the first fully interactive robot. He stood seven feet tall and was made up of about 250 pounds of motorized machinery he stood on a platform above the crowd uh, with a handler kind of like a a sideshow barker next to him and electro did a like a 20 minute stand-up routine he spoke he he knew about 700 words there was actually like a a 78 rpm record player that was built into his chest so he could he could speak but he also like cracked jokes he he blew up balloons. Um, he even, for his finale, smoked. <laughs> Remember the the Middleton family uh, from the film? The Middleton family, of course, because that film was sponsored by Westinghouse. Mm-hmm. Electro was part of the Westinghouse Pavilion. The Middleton family clearly needed to stop by and see <laughs> and, and witness Electro cracking jokes and smoking. And so, ladies and gentlemen, with a great deal of pride and pleasure, I present to you Electro, the Westinghouse Moto Man. All right, Electro, will you tell your story, please? Who? Me? Yes, you. Okay, toots. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be very glad to tell my story. I am a smart fellow, as I have a very fine brain of 48 electrical relays. It works just like a telephone switchboard. If I get a wrong number, I can always 
blame the operator. Thank you. And by the way, I see a lot of good numbers out in our audience today. Electro, behave yourself. Quiet, please. I'm doing the talking. I'm sorry. That's the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. <laughs> so two big stars of the World's Fair, Electro and Elsie, <laughs> a robot and a cow. Now we've got a couple more zones we need to go to. We should probably head over there. Well, hold on. There's one more thing that we need to check out here in the Westinghouse Pavilion. Westinghouse was putting together a time capsule for the, quote, people of the earth in 6939, which is to say 5,000 years in the future. 6939, okay. Yes, and this was a seven-foot-long bullet-shaped time capsule. It was a time capsule that was like as tall as Electro, the Moto Man, but it was only about nine inches wide. And this time capsule was filled with mementos from, you know, that represented the modern world of 1939. And it was dropped 50 feet into the earth down the, quote, immortal well that had been dug in front of the Westinghouse Pavilion. I can't even imagine what they would put in such a time capsule that would be of interest to people in the far future. In 6939. <laughs> They, they chose really a potpourri, a sampler of 1939 artifacts and everyday items, plus examples of, you know, fabrics and literature and modern art and pieces of popular culture and songs. They put a Sears Roebuck catalog in there and, of course, a pack of camels. <laughs> because it seems like camels were everywhere. They would add to this time capsule in the 1964 World's Fair. And yes. believe it or not, you can visit the spot today in the park where those time capsules are awaiting future citizens of the world in 1639. 6939. <laughs> so if you're it, from the future listening to this show, we want to let you know that there's a time capsule waiting for you in Flushing Meadows. But listen, folks, we have to wait 4,920 years. Speaking of time capsule, we have little time left, and we need to get to the amusement zone here. We, we need to have some fun. Well, at least I insist that you stop at the Con Edison building to see their block-long installation, their City of Light diorama of New York City. You can watch an entire day in New York City pass by on this gigantic diorama of New York. You see the whole day pass by in 12 minutes. They even had working subways. That is truly incredible, but let's whisk past it to get to the amusements. Okay, so the amusement zone was located for the most part around the lake that they called Fountain Lake. Today it's the Meadow Lake, over which every night there was this extravagant fireworks show. The biggest amusement success story over here was staged in the New York State Amphitheater, a huge space. They could fit 10,000 spectators who would pack in to witness a show called Billy Rose's Aquacade. This, this This was a swimming show that featured, you know, all kinds of synchronized swimming and daring feats of high diving, lots and lots of swimmers, including some notable stars of the day, like in the 1939 season, Johnny Weissmuller, who, of Mm, course, famous for portraying Tarzan. It's like if you turn the movie Aquaman into a musical. I imagine it would be something like this. It made a big splash. (laughs) Huge splash. 
All right, um, but, let's but keep going. Another really notable amusement over here was the Lifesavers parachute drop. The very one that is today out in Coney Island debuted here at the 39 World's Fair. Riders would get hoisted 250 feet into the air and then drop down as their parachutes would open. They would drift back down to the earth. What's getting late in the day here, our, our sort of fantasy day here at the park. Yeah, we have to pass by. There's Jungle Land Village. Uh, there was a tiny town that we're, we're going to pass by, a village of little people who live there. You, you see where things start veering off into kind of like Coney Island sideshow mm -hmm. type attractions. There's an old New York exhibit uh, mm. that featured attractions uh, from way back when, including a reproduction of Barnum's Museum. I know that oh, you like to go oh, there. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. In 1940, they rebranded the amusement zone the Great White Way, and they they definitely brought in some more lowbrow entertainment options mm -hmm. and more sideshow type things. We don't have time to stop in and speak to the headless woman in the sideshow. How, how does one speak to a headless woman? Like you speak to any other woman, Greg, with dignity and respect. <laughs> Spoiler alert. I think that they were just using mirrors to oh, block yeah. her head. I, th I think, yeah. The thing is, is you could spend like two weeks at the fair and doing, there's so many different things. I mean, so we're only, we've only summarized just a handful of more notable things here. It, actually, the Times ran a piece called Two Weeks at the Fair. The journalist actually mapped out how to spend two weeks visiting the fair. And as we've mentioned, they kept changing the fare, especially in 1940, to make it a little bit more profitable. But by October 27th, 1940, when, when the fare finally closed, it was pretty much deemed a financial failure. Now, I need to add something that, very tragic that happened in the fair in the summer of 1940. On July the 4th, a bomb was planted the culprits were never caught for this crime. Some believed it was the German-American Bund, which was the pro-fascist German nationalist group that actually rallied at Madison Square Garden earlier that year. There are even others today, looking back on it, trying to figure out the crime, who believe it might have been a, a British spy trying to get America into the war, because America had not yet entered the war at this time. We, we don't know. But today, there is a plaque in honor of the two police officers in the park. And I mean, this is just goes to show that you, even here at Flushing Meadows, you can't steal off the real world. And that the reality of the world of tomorrow was actually kind of a dangerous place, too. Yeah. So what happened to all of these fancy pavilions? Well, it's interesting because most of them would, of course, be torn down. But a few elements of the fair would be shipped off to other places. For instance, as you mentioned, the parachute jump would be purchased by George Tillyou for his park down in Coney Island. The Polish equestrian statue over at the Polish pavilion would be given to Central Park in 1945. So, so bits and pieces would, would scatter throughout the country. Meanwhile, of course, you have the park itself, which Robert Moses and the city of New York would return to with yet another World's Fair 25 years after this. 1964, that one would also go into 1965, would be a larger fair and would be also a financial failure. But when you visit the site of the fair today, when you go out to Flushing Meadows Corona Park, you're actually seeing some remnants of both fairs. Sure, yes. You have the Unisphere, which is that globe from 1964. 
Also from that fair, you have the New York State Pavilion and the Queen's Theater. The the crazy futuristic looking building. And you Mm -hmm. have an entire show on that. Just on that crazy looking building from the 64 World's Fair from a few years ago. We'll put it up on the website. So many changes to the park. Strangely enough, though, there is one constant that would unite these two fairs and that would unite the origins of the park itself. And that is that New York City building. Oh, the building where they were doing the crime scene demonstrations? <laughs> yes. Murder at midnight or whatever. Right. Yeah. Well, anyway, the the sort of subdued architecture of the building was really a strength for... They kept that around. Even as the fair around it opened as a public park, this building would house a roller skating rink and an ice skating rink. Then, in 1946 almost belatedly fulfilling one of the missions of the park, the General Assembly of the brand new United Nations would move into the building. The United Nations, which had formed at the end of World War II. Yes, in October of 1945 in San Francisco. But New York and Robert Moses and J.D. Rockefeller Jr., they, they had lured the United Nations to develop a site in Manhattan, which they would, of course, be the United Nations headquarters. But from 1946 to 1950, the United Nations would meet here in this building. And there was even talk of making this the permanent home. It's too bad that the Perisphere had already been ripped down. Can you imagine if the UN had been housed inside the Perisphere or the parachute drop? (laughs) Well, amazingly, when they moved out of this in 1950, the building became a roller rink again. Then in 1964, with that World's Fair, it kept its role as the New York City Pavilion. But now they introduced a new element that you can still visit in the building today. And that's the Panorama of the City of New York, which is a 9,335 square foot model of the city that still exists today. And this panorama is truly a a treasure. We love it. Um, The building today is, of course, the Queen's Museum. In 1972, it became the Queen's Center for Arts and Culture and was renamed the Queen's Museum of Art. They have more than just the panorama there, Tom. Oh, yes, they, they do. They have, they, of course, they have a lot of contemporary art exhibits. But if you go up to the second floor, you will find a room of artifacts, of souvenirs and other items from both the 1939 fair and the 1964 fair. But do not leave the Queen's Museum until you've checked out another artifact from the 1939 World's Fair, which is included here. And that is a model that was made for the Department of Water Supply, Gas, and Electricity. I'm sorry? Which developed a model of the Croton water system for the New York City area. And this was part of the 39 fair? Well, they actually didn't use it. It was too big, (laughs) believe it or not. But it would be exhibited at, at later events. And of course, today... It is now displayed here at the Queen's Museum, another wonderful artifact of the World's Fair of 1939. To see photographs, videos, including the Middletons, check out our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. There is clearly much, much more to talk about and to show you from this incredible World's Fair. In the social media zone, you you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And as many of you know, we also are organizing small walking tours of various podcast-related themes, 
uh, such as Greenwich Village, NoHo, Central Park, Broadway. Well, we have a new walking tour that we're going to debut in a few weeks specifically on the World's Fairs of 3940 and 6465. For more information, check out BoweryBoysWalks.com. And we'd also like to thank those who support the Bowery Boys podcast on Patreon. For just a small donation a month, you help us put this whole show together and all the different things that we do with the show. We greatly appreciate your support. And we're at the point of the show where where we call out some patrons by name. By first name. By first name. We'd like to thank Deb W., Lay G., Mitch P., Raymond L., Matthew F., Andrew K, Ben A, Carolinda G, Florian G, Jacob U, John M, and Leah R, Kimberly Z, Tiffany G, Tova G, Priscilla W, Lori G, Jess M, and Mickey Z. Thank you, and to all of our patrons who support us, and be sure to check out your patron-only audio feed because Greg and I also record the Bowery Boys Movie Club where we talk about New York-related films. We encourage you to watch those in advance and then follow along with us. We will soon be releasing On the Town. Just in time for Fleet Week. (laughs) So we'll be talking about the New York City history behind that movie. So thank you so much for joining us on this mad dash through the World's Fair of 1939-40. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night. Student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more.